everyone! Welcome back to the next episode of Stop It. That's not how any of this works. Uh, this week I have a colleague here with me from work and I wanted him to join us because we had a very interesting conversation at work a few weeks ago and I thought that this would be something that would be really interesting to share. I do have this type of conversation with some of my clients on a fairly regular basis. So I just wanted him to come and share his own personal life experience and hopefully it will help some of those of you who are out there who may be struggling with the same topic. So welcome. Thanks. So yes. So um, for all of you that are listening, um, I do identify as a gay man and a Christian, which is not something that um, a lot of society kind of accepts. Um, a lot of theologians or ministers or denominations draw a hard boundary there, and uh, growing up mine did. So a um, little backstory for me, I was a pastor for seven years um, in a non-affirming denomination, um, and when I came to terms with my sexuality, it became a huge spiritual struggle for me. I wasn't sure if I could be gay and be Christian. Hmm. I didn't know, and I didn't know which one I was going to give up. Hmm. Okay. So how did you make that decision or where did that lead you? So I changed my mind several times. Um, so first I tried to um, be celibate because that was kind of the big trend when I was, you know, a teenager into my early 20s, which was, it's okay to be gay, you just can't, you can't act on it. Got it. And um, I don't know if you've ever been a 20-year-old uh, man, but that's not how that works. Um, <laughs> So then I kind of left the church and just kind of started living my life um, as, I guess, an agnostic is how you would put it. Okay. Um, and that wasn't working for me either. Right. And, and you had had some pretty traumatic church-related experiences as you were a child, correct? Yes. I have been through several exorcisms um, to try to cast the quote-unquote gay demon out of me. Ah. Um, it's a common practice in some denominations. Um, it didn't work, and every time it didn't, I was repeatedly guilted for the reason that it didn't work. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I wasn't letting the demon go, or it's because I wanted this, or I didn't want to be free enough. There's a lot of shame mm -hmm. kind of associated with it. Right. Okay. Okay. So then as you aged, and you were trying to kind of figure out where you fit. Right. So I, like, so I bounced back and forth several times. And I've always been a firm believer in knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. So I thought the only way to truly figure this out was to become an expert on it myself. So I wound up getting a pastoral ministry degree, which is like a crossover degree between Christian ministry and theology. And um, that led me down several like rabbit holes I was not prepared for. Hmm. Um, the first thing um, I kind of learned is most ministers know half of the theology that they teach in churches isn't accurate. Interesting. Hmm. Um, but also it's so, there's such a pervasive view. Right. There's such a fear of if I push back too much, I'll lose my position or the denomination won't accept me that the people who have the knowledge to change things tend to back off. Hmm. Okay. Um, that's also why you're seeing such a rise in ministers without degrees. Right. Because there are a lot, right. you know. So one of the first things that um, I learned, so I had a lot of careers before I went into ministry. 
Um, so I went in with so many college credits, I didn't take anything but religion classes gotcha. the whole time I was at that university. Hmm. And so in one of my very first classes, I learned that the word homosexual didn't even appear in scriptures until 1947. Yeah, that was something that you had told me during that conversation we had, and that was like mind-blowing, because I didn't even know that. See, I didn't either. So um, we had this class called Church and Social Problems, and um, you can call it an act of God, an act of fate, or me just being the most unlucky human being in the world. <laughs> um, one of our projects for that class is we drew a social problem out of hat. Oh, gosh. And I drew homosexuality. Of course you did. So I spent an entire semester having to wrestle with, from a theological perspective, what is homosexuality and what do we do with it? Hmm. So what did you find? Because I bet that was fascinating. I found a lot. Um, it was an emotional roller coaster for me. I bet. Um, there was so much beautiful affirming theology, but then there's also some very vicious theology. Mm. And the tricky thing about scripture is if you put enough effort into it, you can manipulate it to say whatever you want it to say. Right. And so the trick for me, especially with someone who was struggling with my faith and my sexuality, wasn't so much what do I want it to say or what did they want it to say. It was what does it actually say. Mm. And that's where I really found the rub is almost all interpretations, both affirming and non-affirming, were so one-sided. Mm. I, I didn't feel like they were unbiased enough for, to really help. Hmm. Okay. And so with that word not existing at all, um, and I know the Bible was written in a language or multiple languages, I think that no longer exist. Where did that term come from? Or where did, you know, how did we get to that point where nowadays people have decided that the Bible says this about homosexuality in general? So that's where it gets tricky because that's where I'm coming from. I came to the point where um, I kind of pushed all like pervasive theology aside on both sides and kind of went to some of the newer works where we're dealing a lot more with the scripture itself and a lot less with, you know, this Franciscan monk thinks this and, you know, this, you know, Catholic theologian argues this. And with modern scholars who are going back to the original languages. So... You're dealing with four major languages when you're dealing with scripture. You're dealing with ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, Koine Greek, and um, it just left me. And the, the trick to the Greek is it's not high Greek. It's also ancient. So it's not what they speak today, but it was also an ancient dialect. So it would be similar to reading Appalachian. Gotcha. So not everything is fully represented in our historical documents. Mm. It would be like if we were texting back and forth mm -hmm. and 2,000 years from now, however English was being spoken, they were trying to figure out our text messages. Yeah, I imagine it's kind of like playing a game of telephone where you, you know, whisper a message. For those of you guys who've never played that game, you whisper a message into your friend's ear and then they have to tell the next person the same way and by the time you get to the end of it, Sometimes it's sort of similar and sometimes it is totally not. I would imagine it's the same kind of thing when we have translation on top of translation on top of translation. 
So the word that we see commonly translated to homosexual in our modern texts, mm-hmm. in our modern scriptures, is, I'm going to butcher this because I am by no means a master of pronunciation, it's called, it's acetacone. Okay. And then you see it also in a compound word, malakoi acetacone. Okay. And the trick to that is, that word does not exist anywhere else in antiquity. Interesting. It is a slang word that was used in that specific Koine dialect, and dialects usually, when paper is super rare, don't make it. Right. So we have all these high Greek documents from that time period, none of which have this word in it, so we can't, like, because usually what we do when we're trying to interpret scripture is we're like, okay, where else is it used in antiquity and how is it used? Mm -hmm. And the answer is it's not. Mm. So they created it. So it's a... Com, it's a kind of a mushing together of two words that we do have, and they are man and bed. Okay. And then malakoi is soft. Okay. Now malakoi is a slang term that we have used, and it is specifically used to reference Roman pet boys. Okay. So Romans were notorious for having these prepubescent boys that they would kidnap because women couldn't be in their legions, but they would use as essentially blow-up dolls. Hmm. So they were like sexual slaves, basically. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So we do have that one. And that's specifically referencing young prepubescent, pre-pubescent. pre-pubescent boys. Okay. Because it was only legal to have a malachoy until he had puberty. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> okay. And so before this point, so before 1947, it was almost unanimously translated child molestation huh because you have basically the command if you translated it almost verbatim is do not men do not bed soft boys interesting okay (laughs) okay which is and also every time you see it written it's specifically found between rape and kidnapping huh well all right so it's like, do not kidnap, do not rape, do not rape the thing you kidnapped. <laughs> right. Well, that sounds correct. <laughs> hmm. And so people in antiquity would have understood the context. Right. Roman centurions would have been everywhere. They would have had these little prepubescent boys with them, literally kind of drug around like a dog. Mm. So and it was more directed at that group of like, this is maybe not something morally yeah. we should be doing. Exactly. Hmm. Also, it's just found in the book of Romans, which was written to Roman people. Mm, okay. So it was directed specifically for them. Hmm. So the more I start learning, so that's when I started forming my own opinion of, okay, so this has nothing to do with anything that I had been reading about. Right. It's not, you know, what this one said or what that one said. It's we've been missing it the whole time. Mm-hmm. And this was like the first time that I had been exposed to the idea of the homosexuality was just truly never there. Hmm. And the only place we see it mentioned at all is Leviticus. Okay. Um, Also, one of the things that's kind of tricky is there are no references in the New Testament to women having sex with women, period. Really? Huh. So it's only targeting males. Mm Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Hmm. There is absolutely no scripture 
no matter how liberally or conservatively translated that ever mentions a woman lying with a woman. Hmm. Um, one of the interesting things when I was doing that paper that I found was modern theologians who are on the non-affirming side trying to wrestle with that, mm-hmm. which led to me reading some early scholars trying to wrestle with that. And the common idea was for centuries, mm-hmm. the reason we didn't have it is scholars were men at the time mm. and they couldn't figure out how two women could have sex. <laughs> there are entire That's treatises hilarious. written trying to figure out how it could possibly happen. Huh. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, I suppose in theory that makes sense. Well, if you only have a male's perspective, right. you're like... Yeah, sure. Yep. <laughs> so that was actually one of the most helpful things okay. for me. Yeah. And coming to that idea of you can have both is the entire idea is bent on this hyper-masculine, almost rapey concept of what sex is. Right. Yeah. And there is at no point does it ever looking at a relationship. Right. What does an affectionate, loving relationship between two people of the same gender look like? Right. Huh. That's so interesting. So you did this paper. You obviously, this is not like the end of your degree, right? This was just like a part of this process. This was semester one. Yeah, oh gosh. Oh, it was real early on. Oh goodness. Okay. So I would imagine though, that was probably something that was like, okay, this was a really good place for me to start. And now I feel a little bit better about studying theology in general moving forward. Oh, for sure. Okay. So then what, what did it look like for you after, after that? Because I feel like that would have been like a, something that would have made you a little bit more comfortable, I guess. So I, that process. one of the most beautiful things about my degree is I went to a very conservative university. Mm-hmm. So everything was an uphill battle for me mm. because I wasn't in a place that was encouraging liberal or affirming theology. It, half the professors didn't even affirm women doing ministry. Hmm. And so there's this like beautiful idea of, for me, it would have been harder to become an affirming theologian in a liberal environment because it would have constantly been in the back of my head. Well, am I just hearing what I want to hear? Oh, right, because typically liberal is a little bit more accepting in general. Gotcha. How interesting. That is not anything I even would have ever considered that you would have had an easier time of it, and that's probably not the right word for it, but made more sense to you being in that more conservative type world for that amount of time. But the more I poured myself into the scriptures, the more I poured myself into my studies in an environment designed to lead me in the other direction, I still wound up in an affirming direction. And not just of women, it really helped me grow and find out a lot of like my own like racial biases and gender biases that I didn't even know I had. Yeah. Like, can you give me a for instance? Um, So specifically with women, I would have identified as a feminist going into this. Um, a recently identified feminist. Okay. Um, but I didn't realize how many intrinsic biases I had mm. and thoughts about women, even though I thought women could do anything a man could do. I feel like I thought, that I didn't, I don't feel like I did think 
they had to do it differently though. Oh, I see. Okay. Like I, you know, it's the pink gun theory. Right, right. right. Yeah, they can shoot a gun, but it has to be a, a girl gun. Right. And it had to be designed for a woman. I right. had this super gendered identity. Huh. Okay. Um, but also, I didn't. What coming out? I didn't just become affirming of all LGBT issues at once. Right. So even after working through same-sex relationships. Then I had to look at what does asexuality look like? How does that fit into this puzzle? Mm. What does trans look like? How does that fit into this puzzle? Mm -hmm. Gender fluid. Mm -hmm. And I can keep, so everything was a process of, okay, what does it all look like? Mm -hmm. And it started intermingling. Mm. So the more radical, I guess you could, if you want to use that term, Mm -hmm. my feminism became, the easier it was to be affirming LGBT persons because once I kind of came to the conclusion that gender doesn't matter in the sense that it doesn't prevent you from doing anything, Mm -hmm. and I was able to remove gender roles out of my head, Mm -hmm. it didn't really seem to matter to me how anyone identified. Hmm. It also seemed like a silly thing for the creator of the universe to care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's always been kind of something in the back of my mind. It's like, really? We have all of these massive issues. Are pronouns really the biggest one? <laughs> um, one of my, my favorite theologians that I read, and this is closer to the end, um, which is the end of my degree is actually what led me into my master's. Hmm. I had to take a pastoral counseling class. Okay. And boy, howdy. <laughs> <laughs> that was an event. I bet. And the professor was the same professor from the church and social problems class. Okay. Who assigned me homosexuality again. (laughs) So now I have to take all of this previous research I had done and I have to figure, I had to write a, I think it wound up being 27 page research paper on how to biblically counsel a homosexual. So was the point of counseling them, counseling it out of them, or what did that look like? Like when they said you were going to counsel, was it like counsel with biased directions or just help them make their life better? So I wish it was the second one, Mm. but it was actually both. So it was how, it was what is your biblical stance on homosexuality? Mm -hmm. How does that affect mental health? And then what do you do with it? Okay. Which is why I wound up being a 27-page paper. <laughs> I bet. Oh, my goodness. Um, I think the minimum was 20, but I was like, I can't do all of this. <laughs> yeah. And so kind of what I started leaning into in my research was leaning into, okay, what is God? Because I could, I, I had for years right. argued both sides of the point right. from the theological standpoint mm-hmm. and I can argue both pretty well but I really came down to what is my theology of God mm. and how do I use that to heal people because that's the whole point of what counseling is right yeah so for somebody who might be struggling with that right now and like on the fence can you share a little bit about what your actual theology of God is or what you you know say to yourself when you might be struggling something like that so for me, I, it's the God is love concept. Okay. 
but I heard that my whole life and it didn't really mean much to me until I got this degree because what I discovered that I had was it's called Jesus Christ the Whipping Boy Theology mm. which was there's this big angry God mm-hmm. who just thinks humans are the worst <laughs> and he takes his son uh-huh. and has everyone beat the snot out of him mm. murder him mm-hmm. and then now he's not mad at us anymore because somebody else got beat up the, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it just did not seem like a very loving God to me. No, that doesn't sound like it makes sense, does it? And But it was supposed to be okay because he, he came back, so everything's fine now. Right. And then I was in my systematic theology class, and I was given a different perspective. And it wasn't that Jesus was the Son of God. Mm-hmm. That's the language that we used. Okay. But it was that that was a metaphor for what Christ actually was, Mm. which is actually a piece of God himself. And so that God chose to give a piece of himself to take on what it was like to be human, Mm. to take on the worst experience he could design for himself. So we didn't have to. Hmm. So it wasn't his child that he was torturing. Mm -hmm. He was actually taking that burden on himself. That God chose to experience death. Yeah. So we don't have to. Interesting. Hmm. So that was a very different experience for me. Because that felt like love. Mm. Taking the burden off of someone else felt like love. When you take it on yourself. Right. Pushing it off on someone else felt like a bully. Yeah. Yeah. That is exactly what that sounds like. Which is why it was so easy for me growing up to believe that God would hate gay people the way he created them. Right. Was, he was also the same person who tortured his son because I messed up. Right, right, okay. But it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me that a God who would literally humanize himself Mm -hmm. would torture his creation. Right. Would create me a way just so he could damn me Mm -hmm. to some, like, fiery lake. Right. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And so that really started pushing me more towards what do the scriptures say that God is? What do the scriptures say that I am? God is love. Mm-hmm. God is forgiving. God is kind. But also it says all of those things about us. The very first thing in scripture God ever says about humans is they're good. Yeah. Just the way he made them. Mm-hmm. And that was where I started to truly deconstruct that theology. If God made me and I'm good, how can the way I be made be a sin? Right. Yeah, and that's always been my question. And that tends to be the conversation I think I have with a lot of my clients. Because a lot of what they are told is God is the creator. And the creator does things on purpose, essentially. And what he creates is good. So how can I be, you know, wrong or a sin or whatever the word that they choose to use is? And I think that that's what I hear so often. So it sounds like your answer is you are good and you are not a sin because it was done on purpose. I also feel like sometimes we'll, we put God up on this like distant hill mm-hmm. and we talk about creation as if God just like said these words and things just like popped out of the ground. Right. That's also a misunderstanding of those Hebrew languages. Mm-hmm. And it's 
when God spoke, it's more like God moved into existence. Mm. So I have what's called the sandbox God theory. Okay. Um, God creates with intentionality. God created me and you with intentionality. Mm-hmm. If God really doesn't make a mistake and God really did spend the time, if the creator of the universe spent the time to create us, mm-hmm. why would he create us in a way that would hurt us? Yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? Hmm. So how has that kind of gotten you to the point, obviously now we've, we've got therapists as part of our roles, right? But I would imagine you also have had relationships in your life that have maybe changed since this study. And then I know you still go to church because we talk about going to church on Sunday. So how, I don't care which one you start with, but I, I want to address all of those things because I think a lot of, especially my little ones who are struggling with this, they want to go to church and they want to do this stuff, but they maybe have a hard time finding the right one or one that they feel like comfortable enough to walk into to see if they're going to be accepted, things like that. So how would you lead somebody to find that? We'll start with the heavy and move to the good news. Okay. I like it. The heavy is you will lose relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those fears are going to be actualized. There are people that just won't be able to move past their indoctrinated beliefs. Okay. The good news is the bad news stops there. Okay. Well, that's good. And a lot of those people will come back eventually. You'll mm-hmm. lose them. Mm-hmm. But as humans, we crave relationship. And it's actually really hard for us to truly cut someone off. Yeah. And sometimes it takes time. Mm-hmm. There are people that, you know, I've been out for years mm. that are just now coming to the idea of, I'm not sure how I feel about your sexuality, but I know that I love you mm. and I'm willing to fight for that relationship if you're willing to forgive me for not doing it the first time. Mm. <laughs> so they value you enough as a human, gay, straight, or otherwise, that they want you in their life. And then there were some people that I thought for sure would just write me off. Mm. They didn't. Hmm. They struggled with me. They fought with me. Ooh, that's interesting. They suspended their own beliefs because they loved me enough to question. Hmm. And I did. I mean, I was a minister for seven years and my career came to a grinding halt. Hmm. So why was that? The denomination was highly unaffirming, mm. and um, I had already resigned my position, and they were trying to reassign me to another one, and the state overseer for the denomination called me to figure out why I wasn't willing to take one, and when I told him why, it was, oh, okay, well, we'll just take that as your resignation from the denomination. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. And that hurt, mm-hmm. but it was also really freeing mm-hmm. because it allowed me to explore and find that there are actually a lot of Christian denominations who have grown. Yeah. Who have started wrestling and questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an amazing Christian family now that I, even three years ago, could not have imagined having. Hmm. Um, my pastor is an absolute gem. Oh, that's fun. First of all, she is a she. And I love it. 
Um, she has a master's in theology. Okay. We are a fully affirming church. And, you know, the, our praise and worship leader is a bisexual woman. Um, there are multiple people, actually, at my church who are, um, we call them recovering evangelicals. <laughs> I love that. Um, and several of us hold theology degrees. Interesting. Um, whether they're gay, straight, or otherwise. Yeah. Because they were in a similar place as me, yeah. even as straight individuals, where the more they leaned into the scriptures, the more affirming they became of all people. Right. And then we're like, well, how am I supposed to work in a church that right. rejects all of these people? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I saw a billboard once that said, if your religion tells you to hate somebody, you're doing it wrong. And that is kind of how I've always looked at religion. Um, my mother, I don't know if I ever told you this, my mother grew up in all-girls Catholic school her entire life. I think her first non-denominational school was law school, maybe. Um, my great-uncle was a priest, so it was here we are, Irish Catholic Church, like, that is the thing, um, and I have been raised by her, but she is also fairly liberal in terms of, like, just be a good human, and so that billboard to me kind of stood out, and was like, yeah, like, if you are following, you know, do unto others as you want to, just be nice to people, and when you have religions that tell you that you're wrong, if that is what you're doing, it never made sense to me. And it shouldn't. So if the whole point of the entire Christ narrative, mm -hmm. which is almost agreed upon unanimously throughout all of Christianity, which is an impressive thing because there's very few things that are unanimous. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> through all of Christianity <laughs> is Christ's purpose is reconciliation. So if Christ's purpose is reconciliation, how can we use his example for division? Hmm. Yeah. doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't follow. Right. Hmm. And that's one of the key points for me, not just about, you know, the fact that I'm gay and a Christian, but that I'm a human who identifies as a follower of Christ. Yeah. Um, am I creating healing and reconciliation with my actions? Or am I creating harm? Hmm. Which sounds a lot like our theories at work with regular mental health <laughs> counseling, right? It's almost like the right thing is the right thing regardless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Do no harm unto others, no matter which area of study you are in. If I had to say anything to my 15-year-old self, which was entrenched in some very, like, dark, unloving theologies. It was, it would be, your heart isn't betraying you, which is a common theology to tell. Mm. If God literally lives within us, follow your heart. Mm. If your heart's telling you this isn't loving, it's probably not. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine if you come across any clients or any other, you know, younger folks, or even I know plenty of adults that still struggle with this, what would you suggest to kind of make it a little bit easier for them would be, you know, research, would finding a new church, like what would you 
suggest somebody doing who's maybe struggling with the same thing but doesn't necessarily have the opportunity to go and go to college for theology right now <laughs> which is real right um, it dep- I always ask out the gate mm-hmm. are you a head person are you a gut person or are you a brain person oh I like it or a okay. heart person sorry right and that's where you start okay because I can emotionally appeal to a head person until the cows come home right and they're not going to hear it Gotcha. I can also give a heart person an entire library and they're not going to read it. <laughs> right. That's fair. So see how you process things first. So for the heart people, my advice would be look inside, find what you're truly feeling, find safe people, and express yourself. Okay. I believe there's God in that. Mm-hmm. For the head people, my first book I would suggest is for the bible tells me so Hmm. um it's a great book okay and it's got a lot of resources in it that can help guide your further research okay and for the gut people Mm -hmm. follow it okay if your gut is telling you this is wrong Hmm. but then you get that second punch which is all that intrinsic like theology that's been crammed down your throat Mm mm-hmm Ask yourself, why did one come before the other? Right. Um, Find people who are being loving to you. Yeah. And regardless of what someone says, if their actions are harmful, they're not loving. Right. Yeah, and I would (laughs) imagine, as with anything mental health related, if you are surrounded by toxic anything environment people whatever it is much harder to find the strength in yourself and the ability to move forward in a positive direction i would imagine it's the same with this and if you're anything like me i don't suggest going the path that i did in the sense of in order for me to prove to myself i had to take the hardest route to prove that I would still come out the way I was thinking. Mm. I don't think that was fair to me. Mm. I would offer challenge the thing you don't want to believe the same way you challenge the thing you want to believe. Mm. Because that's what I didn't do. I was so hard on any affirming theology Mm -hmm. because that hope was so scary. Mm. But I gave non-affirming theology tons of grace hmm interesting yeah because I was so afraid of being convinced of something wrong right apply the same pressure to both okay I think that's really good advice that is awesome well thank you so much for sharing your whole story with us today is there anything else for any of our listeners that you think would be really helpful for them If you are struggling and you don't feel like you have a place to belong, you do. Just search for it. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you all for listening to us. And we will be back next time with another episode of Stop It. That's not how any of this works.